privilege to be with you this weekend. Uh, one of the most remarkable experiences of life, I think, is the uh, instant closeness you have with fellow believers wherever you meet them. I used to say to young people heading overseas uh, to work, the first thing you must do is find a church and then you've got people you can trust immediately. And a young friend of mine's heading off to university this, uh, this year for the first time. I said, well, the lovely thing about, one lovely thing about being a Christian is when you meet other Christians, you can trust them, not suspect them. It's a great gift. So it's a great delight to be here. And I do love being uh, at a church camp with old, older people and younger people as well. It's a terrific sight. Well, uh, we're heading into the book of Esther. Uh, I'll pray and then I'll read Esther chapter 1. So let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Holy Scriptures inspired by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you that in the Scriptures we meet you in all your power and glory. We see promises of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're transformed by your word, fed by your word, enthused by your word, given hope by your word, assured of your forgiveness and assured of your great gospel plan for this world. So please, by your spirit, work deeply in our hearts and minds and lives as we uh, look at the book of Esther. Please give us patience in learning and attentiveness in listening. And please sow your word deep in our hearts and lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Good. You have the, uh, in the booklet you've provided, you'll see a timeline for the book of Esther and also a map. Uh, it's important to know where you are in the Bible. Uh, I've picked up, we're up in the Old Testament when years work backwards, which is rather extraordinary, I think. But anyway, uh, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, 604 to 562 BC, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The people were taken to exile in Babylon. And then uh, 539, uh, God raised up Cyrus. We find the prophecy of that in Isaiah. God raised up the Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, who conquered Babylon. And whereas the Babylonian policy was to uh, take captive people from their lands to live in Babylon, that was the exile, the Persian policy in the Persian Empire was to return people to their native lands, which is why sometime after 539 BC, the first group returned to Jerusalem. But we're a few years on, we're in the time of Ahasuerus, or some Bibles have the name Xerxes, it's the same person, 485 to 465 BC. Uh, uh, many, many Jews are still in exile throughout Persia, and Esther and Mordecai, the two Jews we'll meet uh, in this book, are living in Susa. 
Now, there's a, there's a map of the Persian Empire, and don't worry about the details, but I'm just making the point that it was a very big empire when you think that it went from India to Europe. That's a lot of empire, isn't it? Uh, and included uh, uh, bits of Egypt and Sudan as well. Now, it's a bit difficult to find Jerusalem, but if you look at uh, Cyprus on the edge of the Mediterranean, Jerusalem's just tucked down below Cyprus uh, in the Holy Land. And uh, the, this book is set in Susa, which is right in the middle of the map, just below the word Elam. The uh, Persian uh, kings had four capital cities, and Susa was one of them. And the, uh, Ahasuerus was in residence at Susa uh, during uh, the, the story of this book. Now, I'm going to read the first chapter. We're looking at the first two chapters uh, in this session. Um, but I want you to pick up, um, as will be pretty obvious, the magnificence of uh, the Persian Empire and the stupidity of the emperor. In the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rod and linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizthar, Harbona, Bigthar, and Abagthar, Zethe, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this is with the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the people next to him being Karshena, Shethar, 
Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be known to will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media have heard of the Queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Queen Vashti is never to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Well, the book of Esther is set at what must be the lowest ebb in the fortunes of the people of God. God's people had been sent off to exile in Babylon for 70 years because of their sins. Then came the great call of God through the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she's served her term, that her penalty is paid. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So the people of God did return all the way from Babylon, the center of the Persian Empire, back to Jerusalem. But some remained behind, spread throughout the great empire, including some in Susa, one of the empire's four, four capital cities. Well, one of the remarkable things about the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned once, but King Ahasuerus is mentioned 190 times. He is obviously a mighty king. He's a man of great power. His empire spreads from India to, uh, to Ethiopia or northern Sudan, the largest empire at that time. And, like many people with power, he was a man of great wealth and great consumption. Not many of us hold parties for 180 days and then give everyone presents at the end. Uh, and what are, we, what are we meant to make of this, this story of Ahasuerus? 
Well, it shows uh, that there are different seasons in the history of the people of God and the history of the world. There are times when God seems to be winning, like the Exodus. And there are times when God seems to be losing, like here in this story. Because the people of God were meant to be back in Jerusalem, but some of them had remained in the Persian Empire. And this Persian Empire was a mighty empire, far mightier empire than the Jews had ever been. And uh, we discover that uh, I, think, I think this is a good picture of the world in which we live, in which the, the power and wealth of the world is so big and fills our horizon that Christians feel more and more on the edge of society, almost invisible in society. That's how the people of God must have felt when confronted by the great power and wealth of Ahasuerus. I think you know, don't you, that one of the great signs of God's power in the Bible is the way he brings down empires. You notice that? And when you think about it, the 20th century was an extraordinary century of God bringing down empires. The Japanese Empire, the Turkish Empire, the German Empire, the Russian Empire, the British Empire. Amazing, isn't it, to think of all those great world powers being brought down. And we notice the vacuum today, don't we? And other empires taking their place. I think Ahasuerus is in the Bible because he's a picture of a fool who has great power but exercises it unwisely, who has great wealth but uses it to show off, who engages in great consumption, which is the great thing we're all meant to be doing in our world today, consuming things, uh, in a way which becomes which makes him a fool. And he has the show of power, but he's so ineffective, isn't he? I, I love the moment when the Queen says, no, <laughs> good honour. And then when the advisers say, well, if, uh, if this news gets out throughout the empire, there'll be chaos, because in lots of houses uh, and homes, wives will start disobeying their husbands. And so the king sends out a command uh, throughout the whole empire, 127 provinces, that all women are to obey their husbands. But if he can't even control his own wife, how is putting out an edict saying if all the other women in the empire should behave themselves going to make the slightest difference? I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's the show of power, but in fact no power at all. And again and again we find that Ahasuerus can't make decisions. He's always dependent on other people and he always takes the wrong advice. Uh, it's a bit like uh, the book of Proverbs, I think. Listen to these Proverbs and think how they describe Ahasuerus. The clever do all things intelligently, but fools display folly. One who is quick-tempered acts foolishly, and the schemer is hated. 
better is a dinner of vegetables where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it. Those who are hot-tempered stir up strife, but those who are slow to anger calm contention. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty people before a fall. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine or rulers to desire strong drink, or else they'll drink and forget what's been decreed and will pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So Ahasuerus looks like a mighty man who's replaced God on the world stage, a superman, a man of steel, a man of gold, a human being, being given superhuman significance. And I don't know if you, if you followed, you probably enjoyed the description of the beauty of the palace uh, in Susa. Uh, and I think it's, it's meant to be a contrast to the picture of the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. Here is a God who's, here is a man who's competing with God for beauty around him. So let's see what happens in Esther chapter 2, where having met Ahasuerus, we'll meet Mordecai and Esther. After these things, when the power of anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This is a revolting chapter, by the way. It's just revolting. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the province of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let, let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away under Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour. He quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and the young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, that is, that she was a Jew, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. 
and every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women, woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem into the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. It is a gruesome story. Uh, I believe uh, that the book of Esther is often studied at women's conferences. Uh, all I can say is it's a pretty depressing book to study at a women's conference because it's so, because Ahasuerus's violation of all those women in his empire is a revolting story. Well, we meet Mordecai. There was a Jew in Susa the Citadel, verse 8. Uh, the Citadel, by, by the way, means the kind of royal part of the city of Susa, where the king had his palace and also the, um, the civil service, if you like, uh, that is, the administrators of the empire. And uh, Mordecai was there. That means that he was an official of the king, uh, we see that he came from the tribe of Saul. He was a Benjaminite. Uh, and he was bringing up Adassa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. Uh, 
And when the order goes out from the king, uh, Esther is one of those chosen for this gruesome beauty pageant uh, in which uh, rape by the king is part of the pattern of the choice of the next queen. Well, this is a revolting story, isn't it? Uh, and there's Esther, still in exile, carried off to exile, carried off to a harem. If marrying an idolater is wrong, how much worse for a Jew ending up as an abused concubine? Uh, we weep to read now at the sexualization and the sexual exploitation of all these women as we weep at the continued sexualization of even younger girls and boys in our world and the sexual exploitation rampant in our world today. In a way, uh, Esther chapter 2 uh, shows a painful, shows, uh, sheds a painful light on the reality of life then and of life now as well for many people. And yet, God is going to use Mordecai and Esther to save his people. There is no one, no believer so compromised that God cannot use them. We often think, don't we, that you have to be a really holy person to be used by God. But in fact, God can use unbelievers for his good purposes. He used Cyrus, didn't he, to bring back the people from uh, exile in Babylon uh, to Jerusalem to begin that process. He raised him up. Yeah, Cyrus is described as God's anointed in Isaiah. And the great thing about God's sovereign power in the universe is that he can use the smallest details and the weakest person to achieve his good purposes. I heard a wonderful story uh, last year of uh, uh, an Islamic woman in, um, in Adelaide who picked up a piece of paper from the pavement. It was blowing along the pavement. She picked it up. And uh, it was from a church advertising English classes. So she thought, I'll go along to those English classes. So she went along to the English classes and got converted. And then she said to her husband, you need to learn English as well. You should come along to these classes. So he went along to the English classes and he was converted. Imagine God using a little scrap of paper that someone had thrown away as part of his plan to convert these two people and others, of course, through them. And I'm sure we can all, we can all tell stories of the way God has used uh, extraordinary things in our lives which look so unpromising, and yet God's used them for great good. And how wonderful to know that God can use even the weakest Christian for his good purposes. I remember when I was converted, 
Um, I, I said to my best friend at school, I was really shy about this, but I said, I think I've found God, which is perhaps not the best witness, is it? But God used it to bring him eventually to faith in Christ Jesus. So how wonderful to know that God can use trivial matters, coincidences in awful circumstances to achieve his great gospel plan. God can use even the smallest details of our lives.